Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we will be discussing Jurassic Park. Yes, hello and welcome to Rose Tinted. Before we get started, as always, I just want to give a bit of background info about this podcast to people who may not have heard it before. So, Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of our favourite childhood movies so we can revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process, the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence, and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So with that out of the way, Ollie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jurassic Park? Uh, So, Jurassic Park uh, was released in 1993 and it's directed by i don't know if you've heard of him actually paddy directed by someone called steven spielberg oh yeah i think i might be familiar with some of his work yeah he's actually quite good yes and um quite famous director but yeah he directed it produced by at the amblin company which is spielberg's own production company and this film specifically had kathleen kennedy on the production credit Mm -hmm. and she's um obviously the disney star wars producer who's getting like intense flack from all of the uh, neckbeard Star Wars fans at the moment for the terrible job they've done with that franchise. <laughs> but she's done a really good job of this. It's based on a book by uh, Michael, I think it's Crichton, you pronounce it? I can't, I don't know, it's C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. For some reason in my head, I read it as Crichton, Michael Crichton. Crichton, Crichton, whatever, yeah. I mean, it's it's based on his book and he's got a screenwriting credit as well. He did the screenplay of someone called David Cope. Mm-hmm. Uh, stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum and Richard Attenborough. And yeah, it's sort of one of those films that's just seminal, to be honest. Can't really mm-hmm. um, say more than that. Um, it's done on a, amazingly on a $63 million budget. That's actually pretty insane. I mean, when you compare that to some of the other films that we've covered. Well, I mean, the Pokemon movie cost, what was it, 30 or something? Yeah. So yeah. it's like twice as expensive as that. And you just think, wow. Yeah. That really puts it into perspective. Its opening gross was $912 million. Wow. Like, considering the 63 budget that's yeah. insane money yeah that's a huge success that contributed very much to how prolific Steven Spielberg was in this era mm-hmm. um, one of his most successful films uh, yeah so that's that do you want me to uh, run through the summaries for you yes please okay so this is my attempt at the back of the VHS box summary charismatic industrialist John Hammond has created a theme park to exhibit his new creation cloned dinosaurs but before opening its doors to the public Hammond invites a group of experts and his grandchildren to experience the park's wonders firsthand but a greedy computer programmer sabotages the park and its hungry residents seem eager to meet the unfortunate new guests that's an excellent summary (laughs) i was quite proud of that one yeah yeah yeah. i like that you characterize the dinosaurs as being eager to meet (laughs) eager to meet or eager to eat Uh, and my one-liner, angry carnivores escape house arrest and choose to die in al fresco. That's awesome. I love that. That's very, very good. Excellent. 
um yeah love it love it very good summary as always cool so yeah jurassic park why is i mean this sounds like a stupid question um but yeah jurassic park why is this on the list for you paddy i mean if there was any movie that had to be on this list it was this movie i honestly can't overstate how much of an impact this movie had on me when i was a kid i think i saw it for the first time shortly after it came out i was very young i saw it on vhs for the first time probably around 1995 and it was the first movie I remember being completely obsessed with. Right. I watched it over and over and over and over again. I watched it by myself, with my friends, with my family. And I remember being so terrified of the movie that I would have to watch it <laughs> from behind the couch. I'd have to sit <laughs> behind the couch and like peek over the top. But there was still something about it that just made me want to go back every time, you know? Yeah. And it just ignited a fierce dinosaur obsession that I had. Well, I think I think every small child has somewhere in their DNA a dinosaur obsession. Yeah, absolutely. And this film is what brings out that obsession. It was like nothing else. I was obsessed with dinosaurs and the only thing that knocked dinosaurs off the top spot was uh, Pokemon when that eventually <laughs> yeah. sort of entered into my life. Um, but I was just completely obsessed with them. Had the, you know, Encarta disc where I learned about all of the different dinosaurs. I know, I know this is probably quite depressing, but can you just explain what an Encarta disc is? Because I imagine there's some people who are listening who maybe don't know what that is because they're too fucking young <laughs> and shouldn't be listening to this yeah. podcast <laughs> yeah. um yeah so Encarta was like it was basically wikipedia on a disc wasn't it it was like an encyclopedia a disc-based encyclopedia and it was revolutionary for its time and they used to release like a new version every every year or every other year so yeah. the one i remember was Encarta 95 and i rinsed the dinosaur pages <laughs> on that disc like as much dinosaur content as i could consume I would consume. So yeah, this movie was huge for me, like unbelievably huge. And it's actually a bit of a cheat because I have revisited it over the years. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time I watched it before I viewed it for this podcast, but it was probably within the last decade. And even if I hadn't, I watched it so much as a kid, like it's just burned into my memory. So I do remember quite a lot about the film and how it made me feel and its overall structure and its overall plot. But going into this, the scenes that really stuck out in my mind were the... Were they, are they the sort of scenes that you like, you look forward to seeing? Do you know what I mean? So you put the film on and you're like, oh, I can't wait for that bit to come up. Do you know what I mean? Those sorts of moments. Yeah, I think it's more these scenes that when I think of Jurassic Park, these are the scenes that defined the movie for me. Right. Um, even though I remembered a lot about the movie, it's still somewhat of a blur. Mm -hmm. But the scenes that I went in and I was like, okay, what are the scenes that come to mind first when I think about this movie? And there was a couple, there was the scene where the raptors hunt Lex and Tim in the kitchen. And Lex and Tim are the grandchildren. Yeah, Hammond's grandchildren. Yeah. So towards the end of the movie, Lex and Tim get cornered in a kitchen uh, with some raptors and they have to try and them. Mm -hmm. The T-Rex being revealed for the first time also obviously stuck in my head. Dennis Nedry, who is the rogue uh, IT guy who tries to sell dinosaur embryos to a competitor. I remembered his death because it's particularly brutal and it's quite scary. Mm -hmm. And I remembered Samuel L. Jackson's straight arm <laughs> 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 falling on Laura Dern's shoulder. Laura Dern's shoulder, yeah. yeah so they, yeah. they were the scenes that I remembered going into this movie. Um, so yeah, this is a big one for me. 
me and I really want to try and do it justice in this episode and I'm sure we will. But what about you? Why did this movie make the list for you? Well, similar really, but what's interesting is that I actually saw The Lost World Jurassic Park, which is the sequel, before Mm. I saw the original film. Mm. So I actually had an obsession with the second film in the franchise more than this one. Mm. But this film I didn't actually visit till much later on. Mm. And it's really disappointing because obviously Jurassic Park beats the living shit out of The Lost World (laughs) in terms of of its sort of worth, its value. Mm. And yeah, I didn't really have much contact with it, which is amazing when I think about it. Um, And I'll hold my hands up. When I was a kid, I much preferred The Lost World. Yeah. And since that time, I've obviously learned the error of my ways. And I actually, I cheated as well with this one. I've watched it relatively recently. One, I watched it at university because I did a paper on Steven Spielberg and Jurassic Park was one of the films that I watched. I did a bit of teaching with it actually at school. Mm. I haven't seen it in its entirety for a long time, but I've, yeah, like you, I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to be really, isn't it? It's so ubiquitous. Yeah, it is. Even if you don't know Jurassic Park, you still know some of the bits from Jurassic Park. Do you know what I mean? Nobody our age has ever seen a glass of water ripple and not thought of this movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The definition of iconic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just want to um, just say, I think now's probably a good time to mention that we should acknowledge that we actually recorded an unreleased pilot episode for this podcast, which we sort of workshopped to our friends and family right yeah and that unaired pilot was actually about the lost world uh, so we actually have an unreleased episode about the lost world uh, sort of tucked away somewhere i'm not sure if that's ever going to see the light of day but you know if anyone out there is listening and is interested in hearing it just drop us an email i'll uh, include a link to that in the description of this episode and uh you know we might consider sending it your way we've got some unreleased content already absolutely <laughs> i mean it's rough <laughs> yeah it's i mean i like it but it's a bit it's it's definitely um, we released that episode, received a lot of feedback from friends and family, and then um, ended up restructuring the entire podcast to an extent. Yeah. But yeah, uh, was there any scenes that stuck out to you before we went into this viewing? Um, again, I, I'm, I can't really comment on scenes that I had as a memory because mm. I know the workings of this film very well. But like I said to you earlier, the ones that I was looking forward to seeing again, mm. I love the fight at the end with the T-Rex and the raptors that mm. takes place next to a skeleton of a T-Rex like as a museum exhibit and they cl- they have to climb down the unfinished frame of the yeah. of the skeleton. I just love that. I thought that's fantastic. Obviously the kitchen sequence. Yeah. Um but just generally like I like the bits with Sam Neill and the grandchildren out mm. on the island just sort of surviving. I just like lo- yeah. I love everything about this film. It's going to be really hard for me to say, how can I possibly sit here and give Steven Spielberg notes on what would make his movies better? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. Well, seeing as we're already sliding in that direction, why don't we talk a little bit more about the things we enjoyed about this movie? That sounds good. Let's do it. So yeah, Ollie, as we've kind of already indicated, this was a hard movie to write notes about, both coming from a positive and critical perspective, because as soon as it was on, I just wanted to watch it. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to enjoy this movie. So actually trying to engage my brain in a critical way and um, look at it with from sort of more of an objective perspective was actually a real challenge for me. But um, why don't you kick us off? What were the specific things that you want to mention that you really enjoyed about this movie? 
Uh, I think the genius of this film lies not only in the direction, but in the screenplay. Mm. I think it is like impeccably written. Mm. And I may be doing this a few times throughout this episode, but sort of comparing it to its modern franchise counterparts, like there's the stuff with Chris Pratt in it and things like that, which just like suck yeah. beyond belief. This film is so tightly written and constructed that it's just, it's a masterclass in show not tell. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? How to how to give the audience important information about what's happening and the characters without just having characters tell each other what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the huge downfalls of the descendants of this movie is that exposition is done in a really lazy, boring, non-entertaining way. Mm. The very first scenes of the movie basically set up successfully everything you need to know about this film before they happen. Mm. And I did a little time check. And I, as an audience member, was wholeheartedly on board with everything and understood the character's motivations and understood some of the character beats, some of the narrative events that were going to happen later on in roughly 18 minutes. It was 17 minutes, 56 seconds. All the main themes and characters are established perfectly. And I think that's what makes this film so watchable. Like you said, you just wanted to sit down and watch it. It's because it gives you all the story information you need in a very, very entertaining way way mm-hmm. my favorite scene for that is the introduction of sam neil's character um when they're at the the dig site so um sam neil is uh, plays someone called dr alan grant i guess you, you would say that he's like an old school scientist isn't he mm. in his opening lines he says i hate computers mm-hmm. um, it's one of the first things he says so he's quite cynical of technology um he has a interaction with a child at the dig site and it's clear from that interaction that he's not fond of children um and he has some sort of like unconventional opinions on what dinosaurs are because yeah. he's one of the only people in his field who understands them to be descendants of birds and therefore yeah. they have feathers and things like that and all of that is set up not by him saying explicitly all of these things about him but it's done in a very entertaining way so the conversation he has with the child is sort of like a double setup because he's trying to scare the child by the way he's talking about velociraptors he has like a lucky velociraptor claw doesn't he yeah yeah and he uses that as a prop and he's saying how it rip him open and blah 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 so you get the impression from the way he's interacting with that small child that he dislikes children yeah but simultaneously the film is setting up for us the villains later on the velociraptors and what they're capable of and yeah. it does it very nice and neatly in a 30 second conversation between two characters and i was just sitting there watching it just thinking like if you're going to be a filmmaker this is what you have to do this is an absolute benchmark of how to tell a story um and i just think it's, it does it throughout the opening 20 minutes is absolutely fantastic i also love that conversation he has with that kid because it is so over the top yeah this was neither in my good section or my bad section it was just sort of under my miscellaneous notes and i was just like firstly who is this kid and what is he doing on an archaeological dig site yeah he I just know, literally yeah, yeah. exists to throw shade <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Grant. And um, it's so funny because it's kind of like the way Grant's talking to him is just like, what would you do if you came across a velociraptor? I mean, maybe you would assume that its visual acuity is based on movement like the T-Rex. And then, you know, this kid's just there, just like growing slowly more terrified. (laughs) And it's just like, ah, yes, you as a 12-year-old might think that its visual acuity is based on movement. (laughs) And then he's like, yeah, describing to this kid how the velociraptor 
velociraptors would like spill his guts out of his body and he's like making these like slashing motions with the claw <laughs> across the kid's stomach what i like about the interaction as well is ellie um mm. laura dern's character is sort of just like sitting there or standing there next to him watching the interaction and sort mm. of like eye rolling in an affectionate way so yeah. like she knows that he doesn't like children very much i think she goes she says something like they're small adults honey yeah and stuff like that do you know what i mean she's just there as a bystander what i like about her character is that she's just like she accepts the flaws of dr grant mm. they seem to work in that way like she's far more uh, laid back whereas he's very set in his ways and their their interactions and their dynamic is really engaging yeah it's really wholesome and i think there's a moment like she accepts him for who she is but she also teases him about it as well sort of surreptitiously yeah exactly like i think there's a moment when um lex and tim who are obviously hammond's grandchildren are first introduced and tim is like following round dr grant because he's like really into his book and he's really into dinosaurs and he's basically me when I was that age essentially and Grant is like visibly annoyed by this kid following him around and then Lex his big sister comes up to Grant and is like oh Dr. Sattler said I should ride in the car with you she said it would be good for you and yeah. it's just like yeah little moments like that that sort of give little clues about their relationship dynamic is, is like really lovely and it's subtle and it doesn't beat you over the head with it and their relationship is not defined by romance it's defined by their shared passion for what they do for a living but i really like uh little timmy as well when we first meet him because he is dressed identically to dr grant he's wearing like a neckerchief and he's got he's he's basically like a mini version of him and i just love that as well it's a really <laughs> subtle sort of well it's not really subtle but it's a nice understated parallel yeah. between the two and it continues like there's just like little things in the opening sequences that just set up everything so perfectly it's just mm. like you know how movies should be made yeah, I agree. The movie keeps its cards close to its chest. Like you said, it's a show, don't tell, but it also doesn't show off, Yeah, you know? Exactly. And considering, you know, the technological marvel that this movie was and how gratuitous it could have been. Well, think of the sequel, but like yeah. also the modern renditions of it. They are just like CGI nightmares. Yeah, um, yeah. That just don't have any subtlety to them whatsoever. So they are not in any way remotely scary or entertaining yeah. it's just an assault of action sequences yeah from start to finish whereas this one although it does it very succinctly it takes its time and it builds up the anticipation for the eventual reveal of the dinosaurs yeah which is exactly what you should do when you've got a film about fucking dinosaurs <laughs> is to build up to them don't just sort of like throw them at the audience immediately that slow build up of tension is so important to a film like this yeah and that was actually the main point that i had about things that i liked about the movie was the building of suspense in the movie mm -hmm. so a lot of the suspense centers around the fact that you don't really get a good look at the predatory dinosaurs for the first hour of the movie yeah. they are very much a hidden threat and i like how this is incorporated into the narrative of the movie um because it's commented on that the dinosaurs aren't particularly visible to them because they're on this tour through jurassic park and they're like going past all these dinosaur pens like the t-rex pen and the the cars stop and they want to get a look at them and they can't because you know the dinosaurs don't adhere to the park schedules they're doing yeah. their thing yeah. and so it not only builds that suspense but it keeps the fact that they're choosing to keep the dinosaurs hidden tied into the narrative as well mm -hmm. which i just really really like i mean and you do you do get a big reveal of dinosaurs sort of fairly early on in the movie like 20 minutes 30 minutes in where you think <laughs> 
it's a dinosaur. <laughs> no, is it that or is it? Dun, 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 dun. I can't remember. No, that's that. It's that definitely, yeah. Yeah. So you do get the reveal of the herbivores. They first enter the park and they see the Brachiosaurus and it's this huge, big spectacle and they see off in the distance, you know, they see the dinosaurs moving in herds because they move in herds and, mm. you know, all of that. But you don't see any of the real threats like the t-rex the raptors anything you don't see them until like an hour into the movie yeah and a really interesting and important point i just want to bring up is um the role of stan winston in this movie so stan winston is a world-renowned special effects artist he worked mm. worked he died i think in 2008 r.i.p mm. um he worked really closely with james cameron on the terminator mm. films i think he did some stuff on avatar as well and obviously worked on this and a few other spielberg productions but they did a lot of work on the different dinosaurs mm. and what i found really interesting when i was doing a bit of reading is there's no actual science real scientific evidence that the is it the brachiosaurus the big old dinosaurs yeah. with the long necks yeah there's no actual evidence i don't think that they have vocal abilities like to mm. actually make a noise but in a film you want them to make some form of noise so mm. they were they picked like whale songs and donkey calls as the mm. sound design for the animal to give them this sort of tranquil wondrous tone mm. to them and i think they put a lot of time and effort into constructing the dinosaurs initially as these wondrous beasts that are just marvels to look at mm. and then later on when you've got the more dangerous predatory ones all of the sound effects for them were based on like tiger alligators rattlesnakes mm. these sorts of things so like even in the sound design for the for the creatures you have that contrast between the the wonder of the harmless animals mm. and then the predatory nature of the of the carnivorous ones yeah and i think now that you've mentioned the sound design of uh, the way the dinosaurs sound i want to just focus on that for a second because i think that is such a great detail in this movie yeah because they really succeed in creating vocalizations on behalf of these dinosaurs that sound believable and familiar, but also completely alien to us because we obviously would have never heard them before. Mm. We have no way of knowing really what they sounded like. And uh, yeah, they did similar things with the T-Rex roars were a combination of dog, penguin, tiger, alligator, and elephant sounds. Yeah, so it, it's sort of rooted in the natural world, but then it's blended together just with such care and attention that it, you don't question it for a second. Mm. And like, I don't know how they created the raptor noises, but the raptors have this kind of like high pitched, almost like hydraulic sound that sounds like it's coming from like the base of their diaphragm. It's like yeah. a cough. The sound design in this movie is just, especially when it comes to the dinosaurs, is incredible. Yeah. Just the music and the sound in general. Anything to do with sound in this movie is just excellent in my opinion. Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, I didn't mention it at the start, but John Williams yeah. did the musical score and it's just like unbelievable. I could listen to the musical score for this film just like in my car. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's absolutely flawless. Could you imagine how epic your commute would be if you were in your car? <laughs> just like dum 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 Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But even in even in the action sequences, like obviously you've got those motifs of the main theme mm. for Jurassic Park. But even in like the chase sequences and the action sequences, you have all this like sort of like really tense, almost like a jungle. I don't know. It's a, it sounds like the jungle to me. It, yeah. It's reminiscent of that, and it's just like it's all. Everyone is working on this film to the very best of their abilities, and it yeah. really, really does show. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I would like to, uh, because we sort of mentioned the dinosaurs and the design of the dinosaurs, mm. can we just talk about the animatronics for a second? Let us. We'll devote a little bit of time towards the end of this section to talk about the CGI, as we always do. But the animatronics in this movie are stunning, like absolutely stunning. And I think the first time you see a proper animatronic in full view is when uh, they're in the lab and a baby velociraptor is born. Mm. And you see this little tiny animatronic baby raptor emerge from this egg and it provides this opportunity for like a really tactile interaction with the dinosaurs and it is just wonderful Mm. like it's just so good and you know there's obviously the scene with the triceratops there's a scene where there's an ill triceratops and it's lying on the ground because it's eaten something poisonous or something and it's like a full scale animatronic triceratops and it doesn't look remotely fake like it looks so believably real and like at one point dr grant he's leaning on the triceratops stomach as it inhales and exhales and he's going up and down with the triceratops and it is just like i'm so glad they put so much emphasis on animatronics in this movie because it really allowed the actors to play with them in a physical sense and it's just excellent that's super important as well because obviously as the audience you are experiencing the wonders of this park for the first time along with those protagonists Mm. and they are behaving in exactly the same way as the audience would behave if they were visiting the park themselves you know basically dr grant when he gets to the park he just turns into a child doesn't he he's like he's got this like goofy grin on his face the whole time he's there well, before shit hits the fan. And I think it's very important, like you said, that they are able to interact with something physical because you they can then perform the wonder that the characters would have. And that then translates to how the audience is also feeling about the situation. They could have decided to just CG the lot of it mm. because, you know, there are parts of, you know, CG parts in this. And it just would have lost a lot of the intimacy, I guess, of yeah. those interactions if they were if they were computer generated. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to ask you, actually, just as a just because I'm genuinely curious, but what was your favorite animatronic dinosaur design? Like, did you have a favorite? My favorite is the um, Dilophosaurus Dilophosaurus the weird dinosaur with the gills that come oh. out and the spitting of the of the venomous goo or whatever it is that comes out of its mouth. That thing is just nightmare fuel. <laughs> and, it, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. That was my favourite as well. Just the way the gills are... They're rattling, aren't they? They're going shh, like shimmering. And they've used like a rattlesnake effect or something like yeah. that. And it's like made of a papery kind of dragony skin. Yeah. Oh man, it's like, that is such an incredible design. And obviously it's based on a real creature or what they imagined a real creature to be. But yeah, holy shit. I remember that frightening me (laughs) as a child. It's just like loud and terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I mean like what's more scary than uh, a huge carnivorous lizard with sharp eight inch teeth that could also spit venom at you (laughs) and blind you? Do you know what I mean? It's absolutely terrifying and it's fantastic. But yeah, and I think that design in particular relies on a very nuanced level of physicality because it is literally like vibrating you know and the way it's like turning its head and it fools you not for one second are you like oh that's a model yeah it is just unbelievable that this movie is like nearly 20 years old no it's 30 years old yeah it's 30 years old christ I just forgot how old I was. (laughs) This movie has aged better than I have. (laughs) (laughs) 
this movie is considerably more convincing than I am as a 30 year old man. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to just talk about the raptors for a second just generally Mm -hmm. because what an incredible antagonistic force for this movie to have because there's not really any villains in this movie so to speak it is a straight up creature feature it's really b-movie in places as well isn't it it's got lots of like b-movie horror elements to it particularly like the bit that you mentioned at the start with the severed arm on laura dern's shoulder it's fantastic yeah yeah exactly and the raptors are the closest thing you probably have to an antagonist in the movie the way that they are set up and the way that they are treated as characters essentially is just so good and um again before you even get a glimpse of them the gamekeeper who is the only one who's part of the staff of the park who is like everything about this is a bad idea but you're paying me presumably shit tons of money so i'm here you know but he's just describing the raptors intelligence and how resourceful they are yeah and the movie really builds them up to be this formidable force And um, I just think the section of the film where the raptors are properly introduced and are starting to hunt the humans, I think that's where the movie really starts to excel, is that Mm. whole final third. It just hits this peak. And let's be honest, this whole movie is building up towards Dr. Grant kicking a velociraptor in the face. (laughs) (laughs) And it's brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> and it's absolutely brilliant. Well, I think the the great thing that they do uh, in this film is they emphasise the contrast in threat between the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptors. Mm. So, like, the T-Rex is depicted as this, like, absolute force of nature, ultra-powerful and fast, and importantly, solo. Yeah. You know, there's one of them. And then you have the Velociraptors, which are more agile, more intelligent, and they work as a team. They, like, mm. work in packs. So you've got this sort of, like, double threat. It'd be very easy just to maybe pick one or the other. Do you know what I mean? But what mm. they've they've done very well is, like, oh, it's fine. If you don't move, the T-Rex can't see you. And if you're, like, inside, the T-Rex can't get you because it's too big. Oh, wait, hold on. We've got yeah. this pack of ravenous animals that are ultra-intelligent that are also <laughs> hunting us inside. Uh, <laughs> and, like, it's just this sort of double threat. And the the setup of the difference between the two threats is really effective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the T-Rex is basically Godzilla. Yeah. And the raptors are, like... I don't know, something out of a survival horror game. They're more like, um, sort of like a... a Alien. No, like um, like a Jason, aren't they? Yeah, like a serial killer. Yeah, like a serial killer. They have one thing in their minds, which is to hunt hunt down their prey. It's scary. And it, what a goldmine that is. Yeah. For someone who's who wants to write an entertaining film, dinosaurs are an absolute goldmine of material for that sort of thing. Yeah, and I like how the, at some point Dr. Sattler contains one of the velociraptors and the others are like, are you sure it's contained? And she's like, huh, well, unless they learn how to open doors, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Cut to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then it b- becomes very clear that the raptors can open doors because they're basically more intelligent than the humans in the movie. Um <laughs> And it is completely over the top, but it works. Yeah. You know, they could have really pushed the intelligence of the raptors to outrageous levels. To the levels of Jurassic World. Yeah. Which yeah. is like, they may as well be talking to the humans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, that only works because it's, it's very over the top and quite campy in places, I think. Mm. And the only reason that I think I'm okay with it is because the film has taken its time to set them up. 
to yeah. build the tension for them. It's not just relentless, campy action from minute one. Mm. There's, you know, a substantial build up to that. Mm. And that's what makes it more engaging and more entertaining. It's like you, you're like, okay, I can deal with the fact that they can open doors mm. because you've spent a lot of time establishing how threatening they are, and I'm okay with it. Yeah. And there's like a lot of nice little callbacks throughout the movie. Like I think at one point at the beginning of the movie when Grant is talking to that kid about how the raptors kill you, he tells the kid how they flank you. They come from both sides. So you're staring at one raptor and then they'll kill you by flanking you from yeah. both sides. And then when the gamekeeper is out and he realizes they're being hunted by raptors, he's like closing in on one with his gun. <laughs> and yeah. then there's obviously that iconic moment, which has now become a meme, where the other raptor bursts through the canopy and uh, it has flanked him. And he's just like, clever girl. Yeah. And then he gets torn <laughs> to shreds. Um, they're just such a good villain in this movie. Mm, mm. And, you know, for them to be an animal with no dialogue and I can call them an effective villain yeah. is just... I mean, it says it all, doesn't it? And also, side note, I love how at the end of the movie they're about to be killed by the raptors and then Deus Rex Machina <laughs> saves the day. <laughs> well, actually, like, I don't know if you've seen the other franchise films, but if you actually follow the franchise, it becomes very apparent that what they start to want to do, the producers of these films, is to make the T-Rex, like, some pseudo-heroic figure. Yeah. Because he rescues humans yeah. a lot. Like, it yeah. happens at least once in every single film after this point, maybe with the exception of The Lost World. Mm. The T-Rex comes in, you know, in every other film, Jurassic Park 3, Lost World, uh, Jurassic World, whatever, they all have, like, this new genetically enhanced dinosaur. What was it? The Spinosaurus that was in yeah, Jurassic yeah. Park 3, and then yeah. I don't know what the one's called in Jurassic World. Who gives a shit? Yeah. But, like, they're imminently about to devour our protagonist, and then the good old-fashioned Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex with his tiny arms and his big head comes in and saves the day. It happens yeah. every time, and I'm just... I was thinking when I was watching them, are you trying to make the T-Rex into a hero? Yeah. And, like, I just find that concept baffling. Yeah, and I think it was almost an accident. I think in this movie, it was kind of just like, okay we've built these raptors up to be this insane malevolent force because the t-rex isn't malevolent it's like a force of nature whereas the raptors yeah. are treated as malevolent so we've built the raptors up to be this like unstoppable force what's the only thing that can stop them the t-rex and so it's not like treating the t-rex as a hero no it's just like the only way out of that situation for these characters yeah the t-rex is the payoff to that scenario yeah whereas exactly. in the in the future films he's just a character who steps in at the last moment like it's his thing and i don't I don't know if this is the case but i always just imagine that it's exactly the same tyrannosaurus rex in every single film <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i think you raise a really good point there because what's probably happened there is the t-rex being treated as a hero in subsequent movies is probably in response to the reaction to this movie because that's probably how t-rex was received after this movie came yeah. out um yeah. so that's a very good point um, so I know we need to we, we need to touch on the CGI before we move into the things that we enjoyed a little bit less. But before we do that, I just want to mention briefly sort of the philosophy underpinning the movie. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the science and philosophy being explored throughout the movie is like simplistic and you have to take it with a massive grain of salt. And I'll go into that a little bit later on in this discussion. But I really like Ian Malcolm's speech about the irresponsibility of Hammond's actions. Oh my God. Oh my God. How have we gone this amount? 
amount of time without talking about Jeff Goldblum. I know, right? I know. But like, well, I'm saving most of him for the bad section, to be fair, because he is no. a he's a he is a creepy guy. Let's be real. Let's be real. He's like fucking rock and roll philosophy incel, basically. Yeah. Um, well, he's not really philosophy incel, but he's like if a philosopher and a pickup artist sort of like joined in the middle um but i like a lot of the philosophy that he espouses even if it is overly simplistic in service of the movie i like his speech about hammond's irresponsibility so particularly regarding the overlap between scientific progress and consumerism yeah so he says something along the lines of you've created this dinosaurs and before you even knew what you had you patented it you packaged it and now you're selling it you put it on the lunchbox and this feels like a really prescient and relevant statement to today especially when you consider things like social media where these massive powerful tools that we now use day to day they created this thing didn't even consider the ramifications of what it might mean for society Mm. but then patented it released it and started making money off of it and i think that whole criticism of hammond's actions is increasingly relevant to today yeah if your goal is to make money the safety and well-being of people will always inevitably be compromised because the ability to see profit is much easier than identifying any possible ramifications that might happen down the line. So again, there's that famous line where he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah. And I think that's another great line and very fitting if you consider the age we live in and sort of like the advancement of things like artificial intelligence and stuff like that. Um, And I like how they balance the characters being genuinely very impressed and overwhelmed by Hammond's achievements, but also all of them are critical of them in that sense Mm -hmm. and i just liked that little philosophical vein well interestingly the only character that isn't critical of hammond is the lawyer the blood-sucking lawyer yeah the blood-sucking lawyer (laughs) i don't know what spielberg has against lawyers (laughs) (laughs) he goes to town on them in this movie (laughs) yeah the blood-sucking lawyer i think his name's gennaro the character Um, he's the only one that is in sort of full support of what Hammond is doing, but only because of the financial implications of what he's doing. Yeah. Um, whereas the more like, I get, I don't know if you can call them more learned because he's a lawyer. So he's obviously an intelligent academic, maybe. Yeah, maybe the ones who have a more, uh, detailed understanding of the science and the, and the philosophy of what he's doing or the morality of what he's doing, I suppose they're all very critical of it. But again, that's really beautifully summed up, I guess you would say, because like you said, like, Malcolm has this sort of smugness to him. Mm. He's giving Hammond all of these like zingy one-liners, which are brilliant. Mm. But like, there's a clear like arrogance to him. He's called a rock star, I think, directly mm. by Hammond in the in the film as well. Um, but it's really nicely summed up because as they're getting the helicopter journey to the park. So in the helicopter, you've got Hammond, you've got Gennari, you've got Malcolm, you've got Doctor Grant, and you've got Ellie as well. Mm. They all put their seatbelts on, and the way in which they put their seatbelts on tells you a little bit about their character character's attitudes towards the situation okay so hammond uh it cuts to hammond's face he's laughing as the helicopter drops so he's sort of like he likes the entertainment factor you never really get the sense that he's particularly driven by money he's more driven by this the spectacle of what he's achieving it's ego he's driven by ego yeah and the way he's just laughing at this helicopter as it plummets down sort of gives that away Gennaro puts his seatbelt on in this like really hurried sort of panicked anxious way Mm. then you cut to malcolm putting his seatbelt on and he casually fastens it with absolutely no issues whatsoever he just slots it 
in. And then Grant, he struggles with the belt and he has to like, you know, get help on how to do it. So you get this idea that he's like a fish out of water. He's not yeah, used yeah. to being in that environment. And that is just a, a really nuanced example of how the mere action of putting a seatbelt on in a helicopter gives you the philosophical opinions of the characters and the, and the emotional ramifications of what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, I like how Grant as well, he's being portrayed as such a Luddite because obviously throughout the whole movie, he's like, I hate computers, I hate tech. I hate computers, I hate technology. I'm an old school guy. He's so old school that he's baffled by, you know, an aeroplane seatbelt because it's just the (laughs) typical aeroplane seatbelt. He's the only man on planet Earth who actually needs to pay attention to the safety <laughs> announcements in an aeroplane. <laughs> yeah. But then it also, like you said, it shows how he's a resourceful character as well. He can improvise. I mean, it's yeah, a silly... Yeah, because he ties it together, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, it's like a silly little moment, you know. And obviously yeah. it's like, why, can't, why the fuck don't you know how to work this seatbelt? But it does show that he is, you know, resourceful. He thinks on his feet and he's just like, yeah, that's fine. I'll rely on myself. Yeah. You know, fuck this seatbelt. I can do it. Um. So yeah, I think that's a really nice little point that you've made, actually. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think what's more interesting about it as well is that you see all of the male characters do that, but you don't see Laura Dern's character do it. Mm. I think this movie does a really good job of giving agency to the female protagonists. Mm. Uh, Lex and Ellie, like, are resourceful, intelligent, active characters. And I think maybe the fact that you don't even see her putting her seatbelt on sort of removes her from this strange sort of masculine competition that's going yeah. on with how to put a seatbelt on. Do you know what I mean? And I quite, I quite like that. Well, it's it's interesting as well that you mentioned, I can't believe we're focusing so much on the seatbelts. I love it. I'm here for it. But basically, it's interesting that you said competition because it really po- speaks to um, Malcolm and Grant's relationship because mm. they are shown to be frequently in competition with each other, but yeah. in a respectful way. They both yeah. clearly respect each other, but they're both really different. They're almost like complete opposites to each other in every single way. They both speak to each other with utter politeness and utter respect but you can just tell they do not gel as individuals at all and they compete over Laura Dern they compete to try and distract the T-Rex with flares you know and it like intellectually as well they're in competition with each other but you're right like when Grant is struggling to put his seatbelt on it cuts back to Malcolm and he gives this sort of like wry smile yeah yeah, you never get the impression that that smile is particularly malicious you just saw it's almost like he's endeared by what he's seeing Yeah, yeah yeah they're so different like you said and you know that even goes down to the costuming of the characters like Ian Malcolm is literally wearing a leather jacket. And is he wearing leather trousers as well? I'm pretty sure he is. Like, Ian Malcolm, they might be black jeans, to be fair, but Ian Malcolm looks like the lost member of Black Sabbath. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Um, Dr. Grant looks like Indiana Jones's yeah. second cousin. Like, <laughs> a, cheap, a cheap version of Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. Just the little visual tones of the characters, you can tell that there's a competition and a difference between them. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, so we've talked about seatbelts, so shall we now talk about the CGI before we move on? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I've got so many things on my list about the things that I enjoyed about this movie, and it's just endless. You could you could talk about it forever. Mm, you know, mm. I'm going to give a quick nod to some of the action set pieces. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I think the way the movie uses uh, vehicles, for example, is really interesting yeah. because it just reappropriates them in all these really interesting ways where they're being used as, like, obstacles 
obstacles or traps or yeah. threats. And there's a lot of really great action set pieces in this movie. I like the Buster Keaton car falling over as as uh, Grant and Timmy are on the ground. You know, the Buster Keaton out front of the house falling down and he's standing in the window. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that, I mean, that set, whole set piece is fantastic. Yeah, and it's coming through the tree. Yeah. Like the car itself becomes more of a threat than the dinosaur above it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it was less than a minute before, like a haven against yeah. the T-Rex. Like they were in there and they were secure and then suddenly it becomes this this terrifying threat that they have to try and overcome. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And that's what I mean by the reappropriation of these vehicles. It's like, okay, so we've got these cars, which are these interesting three-dimensional spaces. Let's see what we can do with them mm. rather than just have them be in car chases or have them exploding. And you're so right. It goes from being a, a place of safety and security to being a trap you know yeah oh it's so interesting it's just so interesting but yeah i just wanted to give um some of the action set pieces a quick nod i mean there's a lot of them in this movie i couldn't possibly cover them all so let's talk about the cgi a little bit and this is sort of the habit that we've gotten into now as we transition from the good section to the bad section we talk about the cgi and i believe in previous episodes we've sort of chosen what we thought were the best moments of cgi and contrasted them with the worst use of mm -hmm. cgi in the movie mm -hmm. what do you have to say about the cgi what was your favorite moment what are your general thoughts on it um i still can't believe how amazing these special effects look mm. like they're nearly as old as i am and they just look absolutely perfect mm. and the, the reason they're so effective i think there's a couple of reasons the seamless transition between animatronics and puppets and cgi particularly in the t-rex sequence so you have a a lovely close-up of the animatronic head of the T-Rex as it pokes its head up mm. from its pen and it's got the chain of the goat hanging out of its mouth and it like swallows the goat down. Lovely animatronic close-up and then it goes out of frame and it re-enters frame in the background and it's a CGI body mm. and it's that seamless transition between the animatronics and the CGI particularly with the T-Rex that are just impeccably done. Yeah. That's the first thing that makes them so brilliant. The second thing is the lighting. Mm. I mean, it's a obvious choice to have the T-Rex attack happen in the middle of a what is essentially like a hurricane. Mm. Um, so it's raining, it's dark, you get flashes of lightning. But the low-key lighting of the dinosaur makes it really effective because you... I'm not saying you don't have to try. Mm. The time and effort going into this is unbelievable. But, like, it allows you to get away with a lot more because your object, your subject even, is low-lit. Yeah. So you can get away with, you know, scrubbing some of the details and those sorts of things. Mm. And um, that's why I think it still holds up beautifully in that particular sequence because of the lighting. Yeah, I agree. And I think the T-Rex is probably the most impressive use of CGI throughout the movie. Yeah. And I think it is precisely because of the balance between the animatronics and the lighting, like you say. It is just unreal how well it's aged, especially in comparison to some of its contemporaries. Yeah. Um, but I think that also speaks to what we've already covered about this movie in that everything is an exercise in restraint. And I think mm. it is really the spiritual successor to Jaws in that sense, because, yeah, that, sure. uh, you know, the movie is very aware of its limitations and it compensates for those limitations. Mm. Um, so yeah, the T-Rex looks fantastic, uh, especially in the scenes with low light. I don't really want to get down on this movie CGI too much because obviously it's, it's 30 years old and it still, in my opinion, holds up. But if I had to choose the worst example of CGI in the movie, and it's a shame because it's such a great scene, mm. but it is the initial reveal of the Brachiosaurus. It's the first time you see a dinosaur in the movie. It's in broad daylight and it has aged really well but it is, you know, noticeably less effective than a lot of the other yeah. effects throughout the movie. I would say that the 
uh, is it the, the Gallimimus when they're yeah. jumping over that log? It's a bit ropey there. But I don't know if this might change your opinion of that particular sequence, but that's actually... Because it's a pan, isn't it? It pans yeah. across the wide shot and you see all of these dinosaurs. That was actually shot as a static and they mm. had to CGI the pan. Oh, really? So actually the whole background, although it's based on a static shot that they took of the location, they had to CGI animate the pan wow. for the background as well as the dinosaurs in front. And I, I don't know... Could you tell that the background no. was CGI as well? No, no, so, no. yeah, I think, you know, even in that sense, that's quite impressive. And, like, you know, I was thinking to myself when I was watching it, like, if someone came up to me and gave me $63 million, there is no way on this earth I would be able to recreate anything even close to as effective as this. No. It just tells, shows you how many genius people were working on this production together. Yeah. Like, Stan Winston, Steven Spielberg, John Williams, to name a few, are just, like at the top of their game here. Yeah, completely agree. Um, that covers the CGI. It's aged really well. It never takes you out of it to the point of being unenjoyable because, and I think, again, that is because it is balanced with incredible use of animatronics. Mm. Um, and it is a lesson for modern movies, if you ask me, not just modern movies in this franchise, but modern movies in general. CGI, it can be really good and really effective, but it will always age poorly. No matter yeah. what, your eyes will adjust to it, you know? Yeah. And balancing it with real models or not even revealing your creature for a large duration of the film mm. is a really great way of retaining that suspension of disbelief. I think as, as far as CGI goes, I don't know, this is more of a personal opinion, but less is more yeah. in that regard. Like, it's a, an invaluable tool to a filmmaker, yeah. special effects and CGI, but use them with restraint and it will be far more effective than if you yeah. just, you know, do a superhero CGI fest that just makes your eyes bleed after 15 seconds. Yeah. The worst example I think I've seen in modern filmmaking is the Transformers movies. Yeah, yeah. Those things are just like an aneurysm waiting to happen for me. Yeah, exactly. And they never age well. No. You know, they never age well. They age worse than the Transformers cartoon does, for fuck's sake. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And they certainly age worse than this. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Did you have anything else that you particularly wanted to focus on in this section? I've got hundreds of things, mate. I think mm. it's just best if if we just let the people listening to this go and watch it again, because I'm hoping that by us talking, waxing lyrical about it, they will be doing that shortly afterwards. There are loads of things, and I think we could do two or three episodes just talking about this film, but I think I've covered what I want to cover. I think you've covered some great points as well, so I think we, we can leave it there, and I'm satisfied that we've done it justice. Okay, cool. So shall we then move into the section of things that we maybe enjoyed a little bit less yeah i'm dreading this bit to be honest <laughs> okay <laughs> I, I don't think you're giving yourself due credit our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before yeah yeah but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't start to think they should Okay, so it's with a heavy heart, Paddy, that I uh, have to ask you, what did you enjoy less about Jurassic Park? Well, there was a couple of things on my list, because as I said, I really enjoyed watching this movie, but I went into it not hoping to criticise it, but willing to criticise it, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it is a really awesome, big, dumb movie, and it sort of excels when it doesn't try to oversell itself. Mm -hmm. And I think the main complaint I have about the movie is the over-explanation of the science. Okay. So I think that the opening act suffers from maybe a little bit too much 
exposition. And although I appreciate like the build-up and the time spent and the judicious use of dinosaurs, you know, the build-up towards actually revealing the creatures, I think they spent a bit too much time trying to explain the science behind how the dinosaurs have been cloned, right? Mm -hmm. So I think incorporating real science to explain the fantasy of dinosaurs being resurrected is already really shaky ground, and it forces you to actually scrutinize the science behind it a bit. And if you look hard enough at it, it inevitably starts to fall apart. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that the science is nonsense. You know, it's it's a fiction movie. The problem is they spend a good chunk of the movie. So it's like drawing attention to it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's opening itself up for that sort of critical eye. Yeah. I mean, and I'll use a point of comparison in the movie itself that I thought illustrated how it might have been done a little bit better. So at one point, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character mentions the lysine contingency. Oh yeah, by the way, Samuel L. Jackson's in this movie. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we don't even have time to talk about <laughs> him being in this movie, but he's great. He's great in it. Yeah. Samuel, hold on to your butts, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at one point, Samuel L. Jackson's character mentions the lysine contingency, which is basically the idea is that when they created the dinosaurs, they suppressed this protein in their genetic makeup and it means that they have to keep injecting them mm -hmm. with this protein and if they don't receive this protein then they slip into a coma and die and that's the lysine contingency they have to be given lysine by the people at the park otherwise they die right mm -hmm. and the explanation for that is probably garbage but the way they skim over it it's literally in a throwaway line he explains what it is and that's probably how they should have skimmed over the whole cloning process in the first place because what happens is in the movie they go into what's essentially a mini cinema and it does like a, it does like a high school style presentation of how the dinosaur dna is combined with the frog dna and how it's extracted from mosquitoes and Admittedly, it's really cool, but this is not a science fiction movie. Like no. I said, it's a big, dumb, campy blockbuster, and it's an amazing and well-structured and well-written big, dumb, campy blockbuster, but it is not a science fiction movie. No. And I can understand the need to offer some sort of explanation, and I'm not personally sure how else they could have done it, but either way, the level of detail they go into to explain the process, I think, hinders rather than helps the suspension of disbelief. Like, yeah. it's a big, dumb movie. Just let it be a big, dumb movie rather than trying to offer up legitimate explanations. What I will say, though, is that the science of this movie is a hell of a lot less dumb than the science of the later films when yeah. they're like gene splicing velociraptors together to make like super predators that have like x-ray vision and stuff like that do you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. i think literally in the most recent one they're selling dinosaurs to the black market as weapons yeah and one of them is literally laser guided like you point a laser at a person and there's a chip in the dinosaur's brain that makes it attack the person you fire the laser at yeah yeah like what the fuck is that yeah and that's dumb but again, can you imagine how much worse it would be if they did it like a detail? They've just said chip in brain follows laser. <laughs> you know, can you imagine if can you imagine if they went and this is how the chip is built and this is why it works? You yeah, know? yeah, you're right, you're right. So that's the main sort of complaint that I had with the movie. Yeah. Um. Other than that, I don't have much. I didn't like the kids at first. They grew on me as the movie <laughs> went along. But Doctor Grant's reaction to Tim when he first shows up in the movie of just 
utter, you know... Contempt. Yeah, contempt, <laughs> yeah. That was my exact reaction to Tim. Like, but I think that was very deliberate on the part of the movie. And, like, Lex calling herself a hacker made me cringe and, you know, things like that. Yeah. But That's in the 90s for you, though. Like, yeah. hacking was the thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the misappropriation of that term yeah. is easily the worst thing about the 90s. I mean, that's not true. There were many, many bad things about the 90s. <laughs> but, like... The fact that everyone was a hacker just makes me cringe so much. But that's a minor point. They were fine. Their relationship with uh, Dr. Grant is really endearing and um, wholesome, actually. And they kick ass against the Velociraptors. Like, you know, yeah. the way that they handle that scene is really good. But that is literally it. That's all the, the bad stuff on my list. The only one I had was the the slight contradiction between the themes and the ideology of the film and then what happens to this film in the real world. Mm. So the film goes to quite a few lengths to explain how trying to harness nature and exploit it and sell it is a bad thing. Mm. And, you know, there's the lunchbox line from Malcolm and things like that. It's like the film in real space is almost doing the same thing. Like, yeah. you know, exploiting things for money. There's a slight irony to that that I think is actually lost to the film like I don't Mm. think they made the film with that particular thing in mind and the fact that it's so successful Mm. sort of is incongruous with the philosophy of the film yeah I I agree and I actually made a little note about that and I'm glad you picked up on the lunchboxes specifically because there's actually so obviously Ian's like you came up with this concept and you patented it and you slapped it on a lunchbox before you even knew what you were putting out into the world kind of thing and then it does like a little shot of the gift shop towards the end of the movie and it sees it like pans past all the lunchboxes with the Jurassic Park logo on it and they were probably the very same lunchboxes that were sold to merchandise the film so (laughs) there is a certain level of irony there and a lack of self-aware I think yeah absolutely it's kind of having its cake and eating it too in terms of its messaging around consumerism and things like that we did sort of say this though with the uh, with our discussion of small soldiers is like what came first the idea for the film or the idea for the merchandise and mm. I think it was, it was a little bit ambiguous with small soldiers but I do sincerely think here that the film came first and then they realised that some of the thematic elements of the film actually tie in quite nice to merchandising yeah. and to be, to be fair whoever came up with the logo for Jurassic Park is a fucking genius. That thing on its own would sell, you know what I mean? So I think you know, I I hope there's a sincerity there that they weren't thinking about merchandising the film before they started making it. The thing is though, you have to accept that with the majority of big blockbusters, thinking about the merchandising is probably a process of them making the film. But yeah, I don't think it doesn't come across as particularly cynical. No. But you're right, that design, it's um, enduring, isn't it? I mean, this probably just speaks to how much of a man-child I am, but I'd buy that on a t-shirt today. 100%. Black t-shirt with the logo in the middle. Yeah. 100%. It's fantastic. Okay, well, I think that just about does it for the things we didn't enjoy about the movie. Yeah, I got through that, like, without shedding a single tear. Yeah. So that's good. And I think that might be our <laughs> shortest bad stuff section <laughs> yeah. ever. But it's like all of the bad stuff we just talked about was like sort of caveated with good stuff as well, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, this is a risky question, <laughs> but why do we talk about the changes, if any, that we would make to the movie? Okay. That is one big pile of shit. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here Mm -hmm. 
because I don't know if you can tell, but I consider this pretty much flawless in terms of its, well, in terms of its storytelling, visual and otherwise. So the thing that I would change about, it's not even changing about the movie, but the thing that I would change is to not have this film tarnished by what comes after it. Yeah. I really wish that this was a standalone feature that is just this pedestal of what this type of film can be. Mm. The other films of the franchise have, over time, tarnished my respect for what this film is, Mm. and it's a real shame. So the thing that I would predominantly change, I think, is just to not have more of them. And the fact that they're still making them. In basically the same the same formula that's being used here but far far less effective yeah and i think that that has tarnished my respect for the whole franchise and this movie over time so my change would be don't make any more of them yeah i mean and that's a valid change and i think actually the other franchise that came to mind when you were talking about that for me was actually the terminator franchise yeah jesus terminator 2 judgment day is in my opinion, also a flawless action movie. Again, Mm -hmm. it's a big, dumb blockbuster, but it's a flawless iteration of that. The franchise outside of those first two movies just does not need to exist, and it's very much similar to this movie. In terms of changes that I would make to this actual movie, there's just like a couple that I thought I may as well mention. I think I would trim the first act ever so slightly to get a bit more time with the raptors. (laughs) And I would have liked to have seen more interactions between the hunter and the raptors i could have seen like a a predator-esque set piece with him yeah i just really loved anything to do with the raptors and i could have if if they could have trimmed a bit of the scientific exposition from the opening act and then supplanted that with more time with the raptors i would have been completely happy with that well i'll tell you this Uh, i don't know if you knew this either but um the reason that you don't see more raptors and you would have done but the the only reason you don't is because of mother nature Mm. a huge hurricane and destroyed the set where Samuel L. Jackson had a sequence of him running away and being eaten yeah. by the raptors. Um, so I think you actually, if there wasn't that hurricane, you may well have got that extra raptor goodness that you so desire. Yeah. Um, but it's just the bad weather uh, didn't allow that to happen. And that would have been so great as well, wouldn't it? Because when they're trapped in that compound you know, with the Raptors, it, it would have just been so Dino Crisis or Resident yeah. Evil, you know, it would have just been, I would have loved to have seen just more of that survival horror stuff yeah. exploited. And we got the kitchen scene and that's phenomenal. But yeah, just a, l- a little bit less scientific exposition, a little bit more horror uh, based around the Raptors. And the only other thing that I would change, because I think that this would be interesting, one of the little narrative threads that I really like in the movie is how Hammond keeps doubling down about sort of like things are going wrong, but he's like, well, even like Disneyland you know in the 50s when it first opened completely failed and every theme park has problems that they have to work out and he's just in complete denial about the danger that everyone's in for the for the majority of Mm. the movie and I would have just really liked them to play up that kind of like mad egotistical scientist aspect of his personality some part of me wanted to see Hammond have a full-on, you know, mental breakdown. But like a blubbering wreck when yeah. he left the island. Yeah. yeah, just descent into hysteria and madness. Like, you know, I think that would have been really interesting because he is essentially, he's not a scientist, but he is essentially the equivalent of the mad scientist archetype, right? Mm. And I think it's not bad that they didn't do this, but I would have liked to have seen them explore that a little bit more and punished him a bit more for his hubris. Yeah. Or not punished him, punished him is the wrong word, but focused more on... Consequences. 
Yeah, the consequences of his hubris. Yeah. Yeah, that is that archetype, isn't it? Like, the downfall of that mad scientist character is usually at the hands of the thing that they've created. Mm. He doesn't really get any real form of comeuppance. No. You know, have some form of dinosaur-related tragedy that Mm. would directly lead back to him. Yeah. You could even have, like the parents of the grandchildren be on that helicopter they've come to get their kids like they've like heard that the island's gone to shit so they've got on that helicopter and mm. you know just have the mum just fucking slap him around the face at the end or something yeah, as like yeah. a, just a punishment for what he's what he's done yeah yeah I, I get that I think that he gets away a little bit scot-free with his very gung-ho attitude to what is like a life-threatening situation yeah Definitely. Well, with that all out of the way then, Ollie, I suppose there's just one question left to answer. (laughs) Do you think you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie, or do you think it holds up on its own merit? I, yeah, this is probably the only film that I've watched to date where I've had no doubt in my mind that this stands the test of time absolutely, Mm. and um, will stand the test of time for many, many years to come. It's a piece of film history that Mm. will always have a value to it. So yeah, you absolutely don't need nostalgia. I mean, I think nostalgia you know may enhance your enjoyment of it and enhance your fondness of it but you know even if for some strange reason you haven't seen it before you absolutely need no no memory or history with this film to to love it yeah I completely agree. I don't think you need rose-tinted specs to appreciate this movie. It stands up completely, I'd say almost as much as it did 30 years ago. Mm. But then also, I was able to appreciate this movie in ways that I couldn't as a kid. You know, I was able to appreciate some of the more adult themes and... Well, also, also, we just had a, we had a five-minute conversation about seatbelts. Yeah, exactly. Like, that, that only comes with a, a, an appreciation of it over time. Or a useless bachelor degree. <laughs> Yeah, that as well. Yeah, yeah. Got to put it to use somehow, mate. Come on. Uh, Wait, at least you're a film teacher. (laughs) I'm nothing. Um, No. Uh, Yeah, no, I don't think you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie. I think it absolutely holds up. And it's one of the few movies that I've watched for this podcast that I would be eager to show to my own kids, you know? Yeah for sure I would be like no fuck those other movies this is the one that you are watching yeah but yeah um, absolutely loved it barely got a bad thing to say about it I can only hope that we have many more experiences like this one on this podcast yeah I mean this is washed away in a lovely warm wave of affection the horror that was the Pokemon movie. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not, I've not recovered from that until this. Yeah, it's almost like the Pokemon movie destroyed my childhood and this movie allowed me to reclaim a part of it, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and feel good about that. So yeah, that just about does it. Um, as always, I just want to give a big thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune. So please go check them out if you haven't heard them already. In the meantime, I have been Paddy. And I've been Ollie. And we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you all next time. Before you go, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Remember, you can also follow us on Instagram at Rose Tinted Movies. Thanks again for listening.